Hello and welcome to another Sonic Talk, episode 445 on today, April 27th, uh, 2016 of your Earth Time. Uh, this is the music production um, technology podcast uh, from the UK. Uh, we go live every Wednesday at 4pm. Uh, you may be watching us for the first time on YouTube Live or maybe on Twitch if there's anybody there watching that. Or indeed there may be, uh, you may be in your usual place which is sonicstate.com forward slash live. Uh, remember if you want to subscribe to our YouTube channel then you'll just get notified every time this gets uploaded if you can't make the live show. There's also an MP3 version as well. So that's all the housekeeping out of the way. I want to say thank you very much to our sponsors for the this week at Isotope, there will be uh, a winner of uh, Ozone 7, their fantastic mastering uh, bus mastering plugin. And also, uh, we've got another competition where you can win another chance. So, all good stuff. So, let's get straight on to our guests. Uh, we have three of them this week. Uh, I want to say thank you very much. We'll start with Mr. Mark Dote from the Bob Moog Foundation, <laughs> otherwise known as Automatic Gainsay, a reviewer of analog polysynths, it seems at the moment. You've got them coming out of your ears, yes. almost. I do. It's, uh, it's pretty overwhelming for a guy who actually does primarily monosynths. All of a sudden, I'm in a garden of polysynths. But uh, I'm having a great time, actually, with it. Too much fun. Too much fun. Is there such a thing as that? I didn't think that was possible. <laughs> Well, I, for a monosynth guy, I'm I'm having enough fun that I now feel like maybe I can't just call myself a monosynth guy. It's uh, it's changing my uh, whole reputation, I think. Ah, okay. Uh, this is something I was wondering because I, I occasionally happens to me. You know, you get a synth for review, and it doesn't automatically happen straight away. Or you know, you 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 get on with it really well one day, and then the next day you have to come in. And you just, you, you know, it's a bit like creativity in the studio, isn't it? In many ways, you kind of some days it really you're firing and it all happens, and other days you're not. How's that going for you? You finding the same, or are you just fluent synth all the time? It's it's funny uh, with the Pro Two, which is now one of my favorite synths of all time. It was really hard to connect with it for me at first, and kind of with the Prophet Six at first too. But with the OB6, which is over my shoulder, and the uh, Mini Log, I dove immediately into both of them, and I just love them. It's uh, yeah. So I've had no, no. There's been no adaptation time with either one of those. Excellent. Yeah. Well, I I, ch I checked out the OB6 at uh, Nam, uh, and and it and and it just sound. You you play something on it, you go, oh, it's that. <laughs> totally it's really really it's one of the most characterful synthesizers i think i've played in a long time it's true uh the the yeah and i think that's it's 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 really a character synth and i think people have been sort of staying away from character and synths, trying to focus on functionality more than character but with the ob6 man it's just really there yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, Mark Doty. And also, we're going to go to another man we haven't seen for a little while, jumping back to this side of the Atlantic, to another synth cave. I have to say, Mark, slightly more impressive than yours, if you can handle that truth. Oh, come on! <laughs> Dave Spears from G4 Software. How are you, Dave? A bit like Ty's not on. Yeah, good. Thank you. Okay, yeah, yeah. I've covered... You'll see, I've got sort of new covers. Uh, dry cleaning covers. Okay. Are they like synth condoms? Yeah, you can literally just go down to the dry cleaners and go, oh, have you got... And they do them by a roll, and they're really, really cheap, because normally I've got... um, They're like operating theatre drapes, and it. I came in one morning, and I was like, it's like a morgue in here. Yeah, you don't want that. So they, just, it was, they were, all went 
So, yes. I know some of those things. So, uh, here's a thought. Now, this has just come to me, actually. Have you thought about putting them in bags and then having, uh, like, you could get a a vacuum cleaner, suck all the (laughs) air out, and then they would be actually sort of almost sealed factory fresh in goodness you know a bit like um people always laugh about having sofas uh and soft furnishings covered in plastic to stop them from getting tarnished you could still possibly just about use them thought about that yeah yeah <laughs> yeah weirdly enough for storage because if you put them in flight cases over time all the foam breaks down doesn't it, it goes oh yeah all. horrendous oh, disgusting yeah you don't want that and then it just kind of ruins things and we were like oh you could put them in a bag with silica gel but uh, it doesn't work and then it was like one of those duvet things that you put under the bed and then you put the vacuum on it and it they are amazing the they are amazing yeah. but i do digress might be able to try it. anyway uh, thank you dave and also robert bronniman who is there in uh in the client studio where he's working on yeah it's a long project actually so um it's my week here it's your last week it is my last week then three weeks rehearsal then nine weeks in america on tour with OMD and the Bare Naked Ladies and Howard. Wow, that's a busy okay. time. So you get yeah. to you, you just get to sort of nip in, ask your wife to, uh, to to do your laundry, and then leave again. Well, kind of, it's kind of a lot of lot of we're kind of revamping a lot of the set and all sorts. So yeah, it's going to be quite a full on three weeks anyway. So wow, well, I'm glad yeah. to, I'm, I am glad to hear that. Thank you very much for. Um, for joining us Robbie and um, of course this week uh, we have to start with this really because you know the sad news that uh, Prince passed away last week I mean you'd have to be in a cave with no kind of TV or radio wave reception to maybe avoid that and once again you know we don't uh, as we've done in the past it's not sort of oh dear how sad you know obviously it's very sad and everything is is kind of unexpected but in many ways it gives us a chance to celebrate the man and his amazing work because as we know you know he is one of the most prolific musicians of our time. Uh, love him or hate him, you know, whatever it is, you can't deny that the man is undeliably talented, you know, multi-instrumentalist. And I know that amongst the panel, we do have some real fans. And, you know, it's, it, it, it is sad, but it also get, certainly gave me the chance to kind of revisit a lot of, uh, of his work and check out a lot of uh, videos and, you know, all of these kind of stories of him turning up on stage and playing and, and generally as a rule, blowing away whoever it is he's been asked to guess with off stage, quite, quite obviously as well. So I wonder if he stop. You know, after a while, you might stop getting invited if you do that sort of thing. But I know Mark, you're a huge Prince fan, very influential artist, and in, certainly in your musical upbringing, right? Uh, absolutely. I recently stated, and this is really interesting, but it just it came to mind, and I stated it to someone I was in a conversation with. I said, um, Prince is basically my David Bowie. Right. Um, and he pretty much everything I have ever done in the music business, even what I'm doing now, has some connection to uh, Prince either. Well, largely just because he was such a massive inspiration to me. And I would have never done any of the things I've done had it not been for my appreciation of his charisma and talent. Wow, that's that's saying something. I mean that that I mean, and I and I can understand that. I mean, I agree. In many ways, Prince was was my kind of David Bowie as well. I mean, I I think I was probably just a year too young to have got all of his early works and kind of. Re- I mean, I appreciate him and I think he's great, but it just didn't have the same resonance as me and uh, as Prince did for me. And and I would tend to agree with that. I know Dave, you were also you know a big fan of uh, of the man. Um, did it mean a lot to you? Uh, any particular album that kind of got you just hooked? <laughs> Yeah, um, Sign of the Times is where it all started for me. 
and we had this conversation earlier about the fact that it seemed to be kind of yeah, particularly this track seemed to be a kind of demo. It had a demo rawness to it, and then I went back uh, and looked at older stuff. But for me, and I've said this on my Facebook, the Love Sexy album was just everything for me for years. It it was there was just a moment in time for me that I met the missus. It was our first. I've said this publicly so I'm not embarrassed to say it. it was our first what do we call it horizontal kiss by the time we'd got to that track anesthesia it was just like everything anyway yeah it was just a kind of crazy crazy time and also I love that album because and I've pulled it out today in homage uh it's all d50 it's just everything is d50 on that album love sexy from from yep yeah, from the arco strings right from the beginning to uh, right to the end, the native. Hang on, I'll see if I can native pull it up. digital dance. Native digital dance. <laughs> oh, great. oh, great. And then, even better, we go right at the end of the album. We go. That's soundtrack. Ah. Is that soundtrack? Yeah, soundtrack. Yep. Which I not off by heart. It's thirty-seven. And then, obviously, for anesthesia, we've even got. Which is a D50 piano, for God's sake. So really simple triads. Yeah, and amazing, and amazing. And I think it's the last album that he did where he specifically... He'd obviously fallen in love with it as an instrument. And everything after that became... Well, obviously there was a Batman thing and then it became the new power generation. And it was more of a band thing with real, you know, traditional instruments and stuff. Uh, but yeah, so for me that was that's a monster, monster album. Ah, well, thank, ah, you. Well, thank, thank you. Thank you. Well, I think I'm coming through I your speakers, through Dave. Your speakers, coming... Dave. There you go. But uh, now, no, thank you. Uh, Robbie, how about you? I mean, does does Prince have the same resonance in your in your world? Yeah, he's been one of those artists. I guess I always have much more of a fascination. A lot of people kind of lump him alongside Michael Jackson as these kind of two sort of enigmas of our time that were just like geniuses but uh, i've always had much more of a fascination for prince just because of all the mythology around him and his you know his supposed vault of thousands of songs unreleased and you know the fact he wrote two songs a day supposedly and all the you know and his work you know and everyone i've ever met who's kind of met him says about him just like virtually never sleeping and just working and working and work all this stuff i've always kind of had that kind of fascination i i, I love the album that dave said i actually love the batman soundtrack he did which i think was the next album he did after yeah. sign of, uh, after love sexy i think um but yeah i mean i mean just and just going and reviewing some you know some footage in the last few days i'm sure like everybody else it's just unbelievable his his versatility you know, it's just it's just sickening the way you could just get on the drums or bass or guitar or anything and just be like better than most people who only dedicate themselves to one instrument. You know, I mean, it's just ridiculous. You know, yeah, just kind of came out of his fingers, didn't it? It was amazing. Yeah. And, the, and the fact that he could give a, you know, sterile drum box some real soul. Uh, I did meet him once. That's weird, isn't it? Wow, did you? Yeah, do, do but tell. I didn't think it was him. I was at Nam. <laughs> I was at Nam and I was on this booth and this little guy comes up and he's, it's Prince, but he's really tiny. And um, he's flanked by two kids in like Chips Cops uniforms. 
And I thought it was like, you know, because like on some of the booths, they have those. There's lots Marilyn of looky likes that, yeah. Yeah. And I thought it was that. And I noticed that everybody, it wasn't even my booth. Um, but he started asking me about this synth, which I had helped uh, in the development of. So I was talking to him about it. And I, th- I was thinking as I'm, as I'm kind of talking to him, in fact, it's really funny because he's so quiet. He was so quiet, I kind of went, what? <laughs> sort of like that and, and the kids kind of looked at me like they were about to pull out their guns I don't know I'm like well, this is really quite surreal is this a look and sound alike Prince <laughs> anyway what I noticed is, is that there's loads of people in the background just kind of looking at me like horrified like I'm going to say the wrong thing and I'm going to get killed or something and then afterwards they all came up what did he say what did he say and I honestly don't really remember because it's so surreal it's like you know those moments where you think was that real or did I dream that? Anyway, I found out later it was it was really him. Because it's, it's probably difficult to get somebody who looks exactly the same and is exactly the same size and speaks the same. That's true. And oh, it, well, that's a great one. That's a great one. I, I haven't got really? any... Um, I mean, the other thing uh, that... Uh, just going back to uh, Sign of the Times, the one thing that uh, I actually was doing a bit of research, I wrote a little piece on Sonic last week about it. But at the time you know it was the time when i was working four track atari drum machine you know just trying to make some music and when when that album came out it sat like you say it had a sort of demo vibe to it in fact it got quite a lot of stick from the music critic press saying you know it's unfinished it's not properly done but it, for me it was massively inspiring because i just thought well if if somebody who's a multi-instrumentalist which incidentally i was at the time you know sort of well i i tried to play instruments it, it, I found it hugely inspiring. I thought, well, if that, if, if they could, do, if he can do it, and it's acceptable, then there's hope. You know, it means it gave me a huge amount of inspiration, and I think that's one thing that that was definitely, um, I, I would credit him for. But the other thing is, reading up on it, it turns out that that album was one of the most expensive he ever made because it would, took so long in the studio, and it was actually really heavily crafted to sound. Uh, that way which kind of was a, a little bit of a of a letdown in many ways but i suppose that's a, that's uh that's just the way it goes but yeah very influential so mark have you uh, i know you're a big fan um have you got any uh a print being near any print stories you care to share with us i know you did uh, say you posted something about the story of the prince letter or prince's so, uh, writing that you had right. on a sheet but you said it was an hour and a half so you might need to uh you know summarize it somewhat it. yeah <laughs> Um, okay, so before I really like did anything in the music business, I, my music obsession was Prince, and I decided that I was going to actually meet him and get to be best friends with him. But as it turned out, instead of that, I actually got a job at Paisley Park and worked there for six months. Wow. So <laughs> I have uh, maybe a, a million Met Prince stories, <laughs> but yeah, so... Uh, there, there. It, I was around him quite a bit. We never did get to be friends, and never really had any substantive conversations. But uh, I was around him a very great deal, and it was a, uh, it was unbelievable. It was absolutely amazing. And I had to be careful too because I didn't meet him naturally, like in a music context. I was basically an employee, so I had to be really careful about like interfering with anything that he was doing or like coming up to him and grabbing his lapels and saying, Oh my God, you're God to me, which, you know, obviously would have been, uh, yeah. A sackable offense. I'd imagine (laughs) grounds for dismissal. Yeah. But, uh, it was an incredible, incredible experience. 
Oh, you, you uh, what, 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 wait that, wait up there. Okay, right. So my yeah, only, my, do? yeah. What, what, what was it that you did? And tell me about Paisley Park as well, because that's one thing that I'm really fascinated by. In the same way, it was like Gabriel did the same sort of thing, Peter Gabriel, where he was in charge of his music in the same way that Prince was to a, a very great degree, and he built these kind of studio complex, real world, and before that there was uh, Ash. Ashcombe House and th- th- these are the places that were built around his creativity so I need to know more Mark <laughs> well it was it was like a it was a temple it was it was an amazing place it is an amazing place uh, there's three studios it has a tremendous sound stage where a lot of the videos were shot um, it's got offices all over the place uh, I'm not sure there's a new building in the back I don't know anything about um but yeah, I mean, what would you like to know? What, what, were you, what was it that you were doing there? Then what was your actual oh. role in the in the proceedings? Well, I had a really important position. No, I was the uh, administrative assistant to the general manager of Paisley Park Retail. Okay. That was my- <laughs> oh, so was there a whole was there a whole sort of like merchandise and that side of things that I didn't know? Cause it didn't it wasn't like open to the public or anything, was it? Well, actually, uh, just before I got there, Prince had opened a retail store in Minneapolis and in London, and he also had a, a, a telephone ordering sort of uh, a catalog order hotline called 1-800-NEW-FUNK. And so the retail division came about to sort of administrate all of these uh, retail-related things. And, yeah. Wow. And, okay. Wow. So, I mean, was there, was there an, I mean, I'm guessing there was an enormous amount of creativity going on because, as we know, he sort of uh, used to, used to befriend or, you know, uh, uh, not manage, but take bands under his wing and sort of bring them through his projects. Was he, was he the, the kind of producer of all of that sort of stuff or was it sort of just the studio function and it was just his facility that was being used? Well, he got into this thing uh, when I, like, it had started, I think it started the year before, but while I was there, he had these Love for One Another concerts that he had pretty much every weekend at Paisley Park, and the general public was able to come in and uh, watch these performances on the soundstage, and he often had other bands playing that he liked uh, opening for him, and I got to see him perform, (laughs) I don't even know how many times, Many, many, many times. And I was, it was kind of dangerous for me because I, I kind of needed to keep a low profile because I wasn't supposed to be a fan and working there. But for every performance that Prince did, I was like within the first couple of people from the stage. Like I was there. And I kind of pretend like, uh, yeah, I work here. So this is kind of a security thing. But really, it was just me staring up at Prince going, this is the best performer I have ever seen in my life. And that's still true. No offense to anyone, but there's, he was the very most talented performer I have ever seen. Yeah, I mean, he was. Uh, that, that's the one thing that's clear with all these videos that are now surfacing of him playing with. There's, there's a brilliant one with him, with James Brown, which I might play a little later on, uh, where he just gets caught up on stage, just does his thing, really disjointedly but someone hands him a guitar that's one of the rhythm guitarists and he plays then he dances then he kind of does the james brown moves better than james brown can and then walks off the stage and as he walks on the off the stage he holds onto this lamppost that's part of the set and it falls off it falls over and there's so he leaves the stage in complete 
complete chaos. <laughs> it's just, it's absolutely brilliant. Wow, Mark, I'm, I'm really, uh, I, I don't know what to say about that. Um, Robbie, you, you, you were saying, I mean, this is the other thing also. Obviously, he was a very secretive fellow, wasn't he? And there was, there was a lot of, uh, you know, you, it's almost the first rule of working for Prince is you can't talk about Prince. But, I mean, have you got, any, uh, have you got anything that you can share with us? Because I know you knew uh, maybe a person or two. I've got a couple of stories. One, one of them's a very funny story. I've got a friend called Kevan Frost. He's, um, he's, a music, he's a bass player primarily, but a multi-instrumentalist. He's the MD for Culture Club and um, Boy George. He does everything with, with Boy George and John Themis. And um, he was like the biggest Prince fan ever, a bit like Mark. And um, a long time ago, Prince came to a Culture Club gig in America and was watching it backstage, and they didn't know. And afterwards, he was there. He was backstage, Prince. <laughs> and so Kevin was like, "This is it. This is my time. This is my moment." <laughs> anyway, someone brought him over and, and introduced Prince to Kevin, and Kevin went, "Oh, I think I've left my car open. I've got to go and check if my car's locked," and walked off. <laughs> he couldn't handle it. He just couldn't. Totally, he totally. He just totally froze. Totally blanked out. Walked off and thought, that's it, that's it, it's ruined. I've lost my moment. <laughs> but anyway, weirdly, he got a phone call the next day. They were, they were in, the, in, the, in the Minneapolis area. He got a phone call saying, Prince would really like you to come to the studio, to Paisley Park, on your own. And this car came to the hotel and picked him up really late at night. And he, went, he was driven to Paisley Park. He went into the main studio and there was Prince just sitting there on his own. And he sat with Prince for about three or four hours. And Prince was really, said, I really want to play you some of my new tracks to see what you think. And they just sat there listening to tracks for about three or four hours, just wow. chatting about music. And then he said goodbye. And that was it. That was, that was it. The royal like, summons. One sort of audience with Prince. Just So, yeah. That was quite, but that was, that's quite, but the, the, the other one, which I thought was really kind of goes in with the kind of Prince mythology very much is that, um, there's a girl called Eda Nielsen, who's a friend of mine, who did a lot of stuff with me when I was doing stuff for TC at NAM Frankfurt. She's a bass player. And, um, she, a few years ago, she got a phone call from somebody saying, this is Prince's management team. Prince has seen some of the videos you've done at NAMM and Frankfurt for TC Electronic online, and he'd like you to come out and audition for him. Jesus. And she just thought it was some sort of wind-up, because, again, this was her ultimate goal in life, was that she wanted to play bass for Prince. And she obviously thought, like most people, it's never going to happen. So anyway, she put the phone down on this person, thinking it was just one of her friends making a joke. But they rang back and said, no, this really is... This really is the case. Would you be up for it? And she said, yes, definitely. So she waited and waited, and a few weeks passed, and nothing happened. Then all of a sudden, one day, this plane ticket turned up at her house saying, this is when Prince wants you to come over, and you've got to learn all these songs, etc., etc., etc. So she, she flew out. She flew out to Minneapolis, and then um, she sat in this hotel for three days or something like that. Nothing. It didn't hear from anybody. And again, just one night, she got this. There was a call from the front desk that said, there's going to be a car outside to pick you up. It was pretty late at night and take you down to Paisley Park. So she went down to Paisley Park and um, 
was taken into this big room. She said it was a big, I don't know what, a big room. And just in the middle, there was Prince with a guitar and a piano. And, um, and she went over there and they jammed for about four or five hours, literally just incessantly jammed and talked. And eventually he said, what do you think to her? And she went, what do you mean, what do I think? And then all of a sudden these voices all came out saying, oh, great. And all these other people have been watching from behind like two-way mirrors. <laughs> so he basically said, he basically said you're, okay, you're my new bass player. Anything you want, equipment, we don't do any endorsements, anything you want, just let me know. It's all going to be sorted out. And then she went on to be, he, she was his last bass player right up until, until he, you know, she's been touring with him for the last five years as part of Third Eye Girl, which was the kind of the three girl trio that has been kind of his backing band. And she just said it was like, you know, it was just a dream come true on a retainer permanently and how amazing he was as a person. And yeah, just, you know, that kind of fits with the kind of unconventional way that he does things, you know. Yeah. Wow. There's nothing like being put on the spot like that. Well, I mean, and and fair play to her for for being able to deal with that because I I'd just go to pit. Well, I'd at first I'd have said no because I'd just be too terrified. When she went to the first proper rehearsals, she was given a list of over 200 songs that she had to learn. Wow. And 20 minutes in which to do it. Wow. Yeah, Yeah, 200 songs that he might want to pull out at any time. Or something like that. Yeah. Wow. Amazing. That Amazing. is incredible. That is, I mean, I guess that transit, because you were talking the transition from Love Sexy to when it became New Power Generation and more a band kind of scenario, which must have been very liberating for him. You know, if you can get the right musicians around you, you can just kind of go, right, one, two, three, four, go. And they just go with you rather than having to construct the whole thing around you, around, you know, an idea, which I'm sure he was very good at as well. So, oh, that's fantastic. What a it's great that idea of just being so. I don't know, just having all of those people around and just going, right, you, that, you, that, you, that. There's that great footage, isn't there, on this doing the rounds at the minute of him doing summertime at some sound check. Yeah. And the, and it's like telepathic. It, well, I believe that's what he tried with Sheenery as well, wasn't it? But it's like that kind of telepathic ability to go, right, I want you to play that and you to play that. The Van Morrison thing, I suppose. Yeah. Well, look, that again, is... you've got, to know, you've got to know 500 songs or whatever to get in this band or even get a look in. It's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah. And I, I was uh, I was driving my daughter down to visit a friend over the weekend and uh, we were talking about Prince and, you know, just explaining how important it was. And, uh, you know, they, there was a sort of medley medley of his hits and, you know, it was... And the one thing that really shone out about amongst all of it was the... Obviously, he was a big user of the uh, Lindrum LM1 and he basically made the rim shot hip. That was That was, you know... The rim shot was kind of almost front. It was probably the loudest thing in most of his mixes, you know, when it was used as a hook. And then after that, you know, we were flicking around, listening to the charts, listening to, and there was all this sort of, you know, nondescript dance music, all with rim shots in it, you know. And I just thought that is quite an interesting legacy, that you know you would be, and such a tiny thing when you think about, it, you know, that that you know, such a tiny legacy, but also kind of a really important one. And and it's what you know. 200 milliseconds long <laughs> it's just kind of quite anyway that's uh that's that's yeah, amazing i think that's what intrigued me about the d50 thing it was just like because he's so well known for the oberheim stuff with 1999 and then comes this album which was an amazing album in fact it was quite annoying wasn't it because on the cd it was all one track 
You couldn't actually skip to any parts unless you, like me, knew off by heart that this track starts off. Yeah, yeah, which is quite sad. But And then all of a sudden this album comes along and it's just like, the Oberheim is dust. Was it, all pres- kind of, was it all presets then, or program stuff, do you yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, even the, you know, the, even the string stuff is that. I keep thinking it's the Arco strings, but it's not. It's the Jetto strings or something. Yeah, those. Wow. So I like the way, Dave, you just dialed that preset in from memory there and you were straight in. There was no wiggling around with the alpha dial or anything there. It's the fact that I know that soundtrack is 37. So I haven't... This is the D550, which has been in a rack down there for probably three... Well, I've been here three years. It's never been switched on. And yesterday I thought, you know what? I'm going to get it out. Because actually what happened is I posted a, a couple of my thoughts about Prince on Facebook and a mate who's an amazing tech, guitar tech uh, with a million bands, he came on saying and I'd said about the D50 thing and he came on saying do you want a D50 and I went well we've got a D550 but it's not quite the same and he went well you can have mine if you want and I was just like wow so actually I've ended up with a D550 and a D50 but so I fired this up yesterday and I thought where's that piano from Anesthesia and I was just going through a couple of sounds and my fingers just hit 37 and soundtrack came out up and it was just like, after all these years, it's like an old friend. It's such, and that's why I really like that Eric Persing interview you did because obviously he was one of the major patches on this. I think I'd have retired, you know, I haven't heard my patches on all of, sex yeah. out. It's just gone, no, I've yeah. done, my, my work here is done. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good point i mean soundtrack wasn't actually didn't start there i i it was on the m mt32 and i use soundtrack a lot if you gate it you can I, in fact it's all over mixes that i did over the time where i put it through a gate and just triggered it so you go da, 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 you know of that what is it fourth or fifth the, the interval between the partials i can't yeah. remember what it is yeah but it's a, it's like playing polychords isn't it where you have a one chord superimposed over another sounds sounds fantastic Oh, wow. Yeah. We could just go on for hours with this, and we probably will. But uh, I should pro- probably take a moment just to uh, introduce uh, a, a message from our friends at Isotope. And uh, you can use this to uh, maybe have a glass of water or whatever you might need to do. Uh, anyway, in the meantime. Produce rich, full, professional-sounding tracks with the critically acclaimed mastering tools in Ozone and Ozone Advanced. Now, the latest Isotope innovations in Ozone 7 bring modern and vintage processing to the forefront of the music production experience. Updated for Ozone 7, Ozone's highly regarded maximizer features a brand new frequency-specific IRC4 algorithm that delivers transparent mixes with less pumping and distortion. Use it to smooth out an unwieldy mix or tame the kick drum peaks without affecting the vocals. The Dynamic EQ, now in both the advanced and standard versions of Ozone, lives and breathes with your audio, giving you more effective control over your sound without coloring your entire mix. Harness the precision of an equalizer and the musical ballistics of a compressor in one integrated processor. For Ozone 7, vintage-inspired processing puts nostalgic tone at your fingertips to bring the creative color and character of analog hardware to your digital recordings. Glue your mix together and bring a natural feel to harsh-sounding recordings with the Vintage Limiter. 
Vintage Tape adds the dimension, warmth, and depth of tape saturation to your masters for a timeless sound that suits your creative vision. That's it. Thank you very much, Ozone. If you want to check out Isotopes Ozone, which is a fantastic mastering plugin, sweeten up pretty much any audio, uh, does a lot of great things, uh, isotope.com forward slash ozone. And of course, uh, we did have a competition last week uh, where we gave you the chance to win a copy of Ozone 7, or Isotope did for sure. And we have a winner. The winner is uh, a chap called well, I guess he's a chap, at Redfern Mike uh, is his Twitter handle, uh, at Redfern Mike. If you're listening, you must know who you are. Uh, please get in touch, and the Isotope Fairy will certainly leave you a present. In fact, his uh, accompanying text was, I'm leaving my laptop under my pillow so the Isotope Fairy can leave ozone on it. Isn't that a lovely thought? Uh, so, uh, well, you, your wish has, has come true. So please do get in touch and let us know um, that you how you felt about it and how it was for you. So, right, we also have a, a another competition this week where you can also win Ozone 7. You need to be on Twitter. Um, that's the only proviso, but uh, it's a painless thing. It doesn't mean you have to habitually uh, view it uh, day, day after day, but... You need to tweet the hashtag audio polish, that's one word, hashtag audio polish and the hashtag ozone seven to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. Uh, tweet the hashtag audio polish ozone seven to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. and you will get the chance to win a copy of Ozone Seven. Uh, thanks very much to um, for sponsoring the show. Lordy. Right. Um, what to say also, while we're here, uh, hello to our YouTube live video uh, viewers. We've got a bunch of people there. I'm trying to keep an eye on the chat room there. And also, hello to our fulsome chat room. Nice bunch of people in there as well. Look at it. The stream just goes past. So once again, I should say, if you're watching live, uh, please do subscribe to us on YouTube and you'll get uh, notifications of when this is put up online if you haven't had the chance to subscribe yet. So, guys, um, next up, right, we have... Um, uh, I think it must be. Let me see. Actually, I knew I need to go here. This is the uh, the next bit of news. This is uh, an, a documentary that's actually coming up on uh, from the guys who made I Dream of Wires, uh, who is in fact uh, Robert Fan- Fantinato and Jason Am, and they're putting together a new uh, documentary. And I've got a little bit of an intro here. I won't play it all because it's quite long. Michelle Moog Kusa. My father was electronic music pioneer Bob Moog, whose invention of the Moog synthesizer in 1964 revolutionized the face of music. I'm excited to announce that production has begun on a film with the makers of I Dream of Wires, where I will be taking a journey retracing my father's footsteps from his childhood home in Queens, New York, all the way through to his eventual settlement in Asheville, North Carolina. I will be talking with, traveling with, some of the most significant people who were impacted by my father's life and work. My father dedicated himself to designing a long line of iconic musical instruments, including the Moog Modular, the Mini Moog, 
the Mo Voyager, and so many more. Right, I won't play the whole thing. I urge you to watch that Kickstarter. I mean, Mark Doty, obviously, uh, you are also involved in the Bob Moog Foundation, Michelle being uh, your boss, effectively. Uh, hi, Michelle, because uh, we met at NAM at a particularly uh, uh, alcohol-fueled party night on Saturday night, which I have fond memories of. But uh, back to business. So um, this sounds like quite an interesting... I mean, it, it's much more about sort of Bob Moog, the guy, really, and his journey, right? Totally. And... You know, um, I've seen some people say, well, isn't there already a Moog documentary? And I think you guys have probably all seen uh, the movie Moog. And it's a great movie. And it's really interesting. It's kind of a portrayal of Bob the man. And it's it's beautiful. But when I first saw it, when it came out, I thought, you know what I really wished was that it was like the history of Bob's work with synthesizers. I mean, that's really what... I kind of wanted, and I think some other people did too, but this uh, Electronic Voyager is going to be that through all of the people who were involved, the celebrities, the people from uh, R.A. Moog that were actually instrumental in the creating of, no pun, the instruments, and uh, it's just, it's this sprawling plan to sort of reveal the history of Bob, and it's really, I'm just I'm really excited about it. It's going to all of the things that you don't know about what Bob did and how he did it, I think are going to be revealed in this uh, documentary. And for me, you know, as a, a person who is a historian about synthesizer history, it's I'm I'm overwhelmed with excitement. I mean, the, the list of people who are actually going to be in the movie, Michelle's going to interview all of these famous uh, keyboard players and historical synthesizer related people. And it's it's sprawling. It's really going to be amazing. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, are you going to be in it, Mark? I just have to ask the question because uh, you've been around the place. Are you going to get a cameo role? I'm not really. I mean, I they're they're mostly interviewing people who like actually worked with Bob or interacted with Bob and who, who were actually part of the history. And there's a few others like Moby who who didn't and wasn't. But of course, it's Moby. So, um, but yeah, uh, I I'm not going to be in the movie. But I have I will undoubtedly help in whatever way that they want uh, to make it. Excellent. So I'm guessing you're probably going to have be uh, involved in the nuts and bolts of that and know all this, all the interesting stuff. That, that sounds great. It sounds like a really good, yet another thing that you're presumably going to have to take on. But uh, do you know when it's going to be coming out? Because it's not, not clear. It seems like they're saying next summer, but then certain things maybe a bit later. Do you know what the schedule is for this? I yeah I my the only thing I know is that it's going to be released next year and made this year. So and there's a lot of traveling because I don't know if you've seen the list go to the Kickstarter page and look at the list of people that are actually going to be interviewed and it's a tr- I have it here I'm looking at it. I mean it's just a gigantic list of people that Michelle will have to go and meet and interview. So it's going to be quite a process to actually make the film. Oh wow, yeah. Uh, but uh yeah a lot well that sounds great i mean it sounds like it's going to be uh, another i mean I, I guess dave in many ways it's a, it's a, you know it's it, it, a similar kind of concept but more tightly focused to the thing that you did with bright sparks which was kind of focus on the people behind the innovation yeah 
And the truth is, <laughs> if I had my way, Bright Sparks would have been about six hours long, <laughs> a few hours dedicated to each, because each of the stories, you know, I'm, hey, I'm a synth nerd, what do I, what, I have to admit it, but for me, each of the, first of all, it was amazing to hear all of these stories, and, because, and each of them were, there were so many bits that I just couldn't leave out. So this idea of having one dedicated to, you know, arguably the most important uh it's really exciting and i'm fortunate enough to know michelle in fact i had a weird thing yesterday i michelle asked me to uh, make an introduction to alan perlman's daughter who is the the kind of protector of alan and uh that was quite a moment because i've been engineering this meeting uh, this introduction for a few weeks and it was finally it finally happened yesterday, and I was just kind of sat there ready to send the email. I was on the phone to somebody. I was on the phone to Kent, and I said, I'm just about to make this introduction, and we just kind of both went, whoa, that's pretty amazing, really. The two daughters of the two kind of major icons, and you're kind of going, yeah, you two talk to each other. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in that. But, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, what can I say? I think best of luck, and, yeah, it has to happen. I've been talking, been trying to help out put a few people in touch with a few people with regards to the guys who are making it. And everybody seems really, really committed and dedicated, and it's quite exciting, really. Excellent. I mean, yes, that that, that is, there probably are only two people <laughs> who could be in that position who could have that conversation it's very it's a very unique scenario but uh um robbie it, 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 this sort of the, the backstory is always really fascinating with this sort of thing it does definitely kind of add more life to the whole you know the, the, not, not really the myth but the, the the story behind these kind of great pioneers right yeah i mean i, I mean like, i mean like dave said for anyone who's interested to to an obsessive degree in music technology <laughs> and more importantly since you know this is like this is like you know this is like the best kind of documentaries you can you know you can hope for you know to, to to really understand you know how everything started and you know the humble beginnings and all, all the you know just the kind of the twists and turns along the way that brought brought these things into being so i mean yeah i, I i'll look forward to it just like i look forward to Dave's one just look like I look forward to I dream of wires, all these things, and the Moog one, Moog one. Sorry, sorry, you said before. Um, yeah, uh, I've, I've I've lapped them all up as they've come along. I mean, you know, I I, it's, I can't get enough of them. Yeah, so yeah, I look forward to it, even if it is going to be about a year and a half down the down the road. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's the thing with these. I mean, they do take a lot of time. I mean, a lot of time and effort. I mean, documentaries, even though they have a sort of you know, the, the less of a cinematic quality to them, just the logistics in putting these kind of things together. I mean, I'm sure you know, Dave, it's just an enormous amount of work and, and just kind of coaxing. It was and, eight, 18 months, I think I spent on it, 18 months. And it was it was one of those things where, and I know the I Dream Wires guys are probably going to be equally, if not more obsessive about it. And it's just those that, you know, you dream you dream it and you wake up and you go, oh, yeah, maybe there's a different kind of angle there. And then you're just talking to people and you're unearthing all these nuggets the whole time. And that's what I'm really fascinated about this one because, you know, the Bright Sparks thing was a band paying tribute to various pioneers and me trying to kind of make connections and talk to people who had been involved or who were the kind of, you know, around at that time or who were the originators. Uh, for me, the Alan Perlman thing was probably, yeah, it was amazing. 
but this idea that the daughter of and one of the things Michelle said in Bright Sparks was that she was largely unaware of what her father did until after he died and then all of a sudden people started contacting saying he meant this to me and he influenced me in this aspect and that and it becomes a for me it became the whole Bright Sparks thing was this immensely personal journey for her yeah, it's gosh. To multiply to the power of 10, 100 even. I can imagine, yeah, that's going to be uh, an awful lot of stuff to do. Um, yeah. I, I've, I'm looking for, there's all sorts of different uh, rewards you can get. There's all sorts of uh, one off uh, um, merch stuff, t shirts, ties. In fact, Suit and Tie Guy said, oh, there's a there's a keyboard, there's a Moog tie. That's, that's for me, basically. <laughs> I think he's probably going to back that. Um, they're looking to raise, they've got 28 days to go, looking to raise, I think, $125,000. I've still got a way to go as Canadian dollars, so I don't know what that means, you know, whether that's significantly less or significantly more than a, than a US dollar. I'm afraid I'm unaware of the, the exchange rate. Um, we don't have any Canadian clients. But, yeah, please go and check it out. It's definitely, uh, it's on the website. It'll be on, I guess, Marcus, uh, you linked from the uh, Moog Foundation as well, .org. Yeah, if you just enter into Google, uh, like Kickstarter and Moog, it'll take you. It'll the first link will be the one. That's what I've been doing. It's super simple, but uh, yeah. And please, please go and contribute to this because I, as a fan of synthesizer, I, 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 I need to see this made. I want to see it made, and I know a lot of people do. So, you know, I just want to encourage people to contribute because this is this is going to be a huge, amazing thing. Well said. Yes, I agree with that. Right. Um, uh, actually, there's a, just to throw you a little bit of a curveball, in the YouTube comments, uh, GuitarVibe75 has said, uh, hey, since Dave Spears is on, is on from GeForce, I was wondering whether Oddity 2 and Imposco would be on an NKS soon, which is the Native Instruments Control uh, format. <laughs> There's a question for you, Dave. Just want to throw, yeah. throw that one in. Sorry to, uh, to, to, to change course so dramatically, but I thought comments are for commenting. Uh, they asked us a while ago. Uh, our problem is just simply resources. We're so we're like a tiny, tiny, tiny little organisation who have pretty much the year planned out. So it's very difficult for us to go. Oh right, let's stop doing that and let's go and look at that. Uh, if anyone knows or wants to do it for us, and I'd be really interested in talking to somebody. I believe most of the work's on the patch side of things, and whilst, whilst there is a little bit of coding to do. But yeah, the will is there, but uh, no, not Most immediately. Okay, well, no, thank you for that. And I'm sorry to spring that one on you so much. Right, well, and now here's a mega production. Check this out. Actually, that doesn't look... I mean, it still looks like a big production, but it's nothing compared to what's actually happening. This is news that Hans Zimmer is actually on tour at the moment, performing some of his greatest works from, you know, his massive amount of movie credits. You know, there's all sorts of stuff there. Big arena tour. Uh, I was just looking at this. I mean, there's actually a full orchestra as well as all that lot. 
and this is uh, these are playing in very large venues with various special guests. And uh, what's interesting about this, uh, to me at least, is that uh, in the promo for the entire tour, one of his opening lines is, I spent my whole life terrified about being on stage. <laughs> so th- why not force yourself to go on stage with 50 other musicians where, you know, even if you have the slightest uh, kind of wobble, it's going to be amplified nine millions times. Uh, this is European leg. I don't know if they're doing a US leg, but I imagine they probably would be. But this looks like a massive production and it's it's quite yeah. it's quite a major thing. I don't know. Do you know anything about this one, Robbie? Have you, have you been to see it? Because, I mean, you've been a man no, about no, town. I, I love things like this, but the interesting thing was we went to the... Howard and I went to, at the end of the tour last year, we went to see BT do his electronic opus in Miami. Um, for, you know, the one-off gig he did with the orchestra. And that was um, that was arranged by an arranger, oh, what's his name? Tommy Tallarico, who's uh, done a lot of, he'd done a lot of big video game orchestra, orchestrations. And I, I remember he was telling us at the time that, that Hans Zimmer was planning to do this. But he was talking to us about the economics of the reality of taking orchestras on tour. Yeah, And basically how BT did it was he had like a skeleton orchestra with like, you know, some stuff running. And then you had a skeleton of the orchestra, which was able to be mixed in with it to create to create the sound. But of course, Tommy was saying, oh, well, he's been talking to Hans and Hans wasn't having any of it. You know, it was going to be the full on full-on symphony orchestra on tour and he was just saying i hope he makes some money because it's the most big monster to take on tour but obviously he's doing it and i I wish him all the luck in the world i'd love to go and see it it sounds like it's going to be a fairly major event actually and uh, i mean i i'm just thinking all, all all, all of those all of those instruments you know, the, many of the orchestras are priceless. Does that mean, because you see people on planes coming back from Nam where they've got their guitar, you know, next to them. Does that mean every every flight you take, you've got to have like two two seats, one for the instrument and one for the and one for the artist? I don't know. It seems like an amazing concert. I don't know, Mark, I don't know if you're a fan of Zimmer's work. I mean, he is a legendary in, in terms of not only his orchestral work, but in terms of his just appreciation and collection of synthesizers and use of them within this whole kind of scenario of, of, of creating film music, right? Absolutely. And like his modular work, a guy doing what he does and he still does use his modulars in his scoring. And I mean, you've probably seen the pictures of the studio. They're like walls of modulars built into the wall, a huge Roland system, a huge Moog system. Um, Michelle actually went to meet him, one of the NAMs we were at, and it was one of the few times I think I've ever, like, just wanted so badly to kind of grab onto her coat and say, will you please, please take me with you during this meeting? Because I would love to meet Hans. He's just, he's, like, so amazing, so incredible. Yeah, I've always been a very large fan. Ah, well, that's good to know. And I know, Dave, I mean, uh, have you been to Zimmer's place? I think you probably have, haven't you? Yeah. I, mean, it is, yeah. I mean, I know that there's an element of impressing the film the film yeah. producer community if they walk into your studio and you've got this huge wall of analogue electronics beautifully lit and what have you. But, I mean, it's great that he actually uses them as well. I don't think he's taking them on tour, though, right? A lot of studios <laughs> out the back. No, I, I, I don't know. He did this last year, though, didn't he? I didn't know. I know I was, well, I, I know he did because, actually, I had approached him Maybe it was the year before. I'd approached him to um, talk in the Bright Sparks documentary, and 
he was over here re rehearsing. Uh, I think initially it was at John Henry's, and then I think they went to, I think they were using Wembley Arena to rehearse. <laughs> and somebody, somebody involved in the camp told me what the budget was, and it's it was kind of so huge, you know, per day, the cost per day of rehearsing an orchestra in Wembley Arena was just, it was so mental I kind of forgot about it. I don't know whether it was true or not, but yeah, really interesting. Remote control is an amazing place. There's a lot of studios out the back where... His, uh, his, what would you call them, apprentices or the grafters do all the work. And then you've got the kind of main, the bordello room where that's the <laughs> impress the clients room. But actually, when we were there, just off of that, he had the world's largest modular, you know, the Phil Sirocco, the CMS, which just kind of blew my mind. That was right next to a PPG and a, and a Moog modular that had been completely restored. I think it was Mike Bucky who'd done that. And it was just like absolutely pristine. And then the Roland stuff on the wall in the main studio was, I think he bought that by the kilo, didn't he? There we go. There's, there's, there's a few shots in beautiful soft focus with those. Uh, yeah, this looks, wow. Looks like something out of a, a Tim Burton movie. Yeah, it's pretty, it's amazing. And actually it's a really, other than that, it's a really bland building from the outside, which is cool because you've got no idea of what's inside. <laughs> I think when we were there, the only thing that gave away that it was kind of a pretty cool place inside possibly was the Tesla outside. But um, my theory with this is that, you see, Hans, don't forget, Hans was part of the whole uh, oh. Trevor Horn, you know, video killed the radio star scene, wasn't he? Oh, really? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. I've, uh, a good friend of mine was uh, part of that. And uh, uh, the theory is, is that this is kind of Hans... Hans's rock star. He even does a guitar solo. Oh, he did last year. He did a guitar solo, didn't he, on stage? So this is his kind of, you know, his last chance to rock out as a kind of rock star in front of thousands of people. <laughs> well, great. I mean, it's a hell of a way to. It's probably the most expensive therapy you could possibly imagine. I'm sure he could probably just go to a hypnotherapist for a few hundred bucks instead, you know, and, and get over his and then do a few local well, gigs. He could just take a Rebox, couldn't he? And, you know, they have it all in a Rebox tape machine and still people would come. It cost him, like, what? 15 quid and still <laughs> people would come. What I thought was amazing is, um, you know, you know, Junkie XL, Tom, who's, who's been working with him for a load of years. I, I thought it was amazing. I read about him a couple of years ago, how he basically sort of decamped to Hollywood and basically became his assistant, you know, and just sort of... Like he said, he was like one minute he was like the only person in the world to have ever re remixed Elvis Presley, you know, and have that massive success and like be like this amazing figure in the electronic music world. And then he sort of decamped Hollywood and just was like in the basement doing all the kind of assistant kind of jobs to a lot of Hans Zimmer's scores, just kind of working his way back up to kind of move into a whole other part of his career. Well, that's what I thought was pretty amazing. You know, now, obviously, now he's scoring all those amazing films like Mad Max and Deadpool and all that stuff. But I just thought it was amazing that someone who was already at the top of their game kind of went, you know, well, I'll just have a bit of a sidestep into another area and I'll kind of almost retrain. So I thought it was pretty amazing. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm just, I can't imagine. I mean, you know, we've got the orchestra and we've got all of those things for this live event, but I can't. Im- I mean, how many drummers is he going to have to have? Because every <laughs> single Hans Zimmer track, you know, it's just full of multi-track toms. Tim, you know, it's just tons and tons and tons of it. He's, he's sort of the master of the uh, the taiko drum on the uh, on the jump cut of a shutting door kind of uh, kind of sco- school of scoring, which right. certainly has its purpose. Yeah. Uh, but there must be a lot of drums they're having to take with them as well. I I've, got, I've got a friend in LA who, who's done a lot of stuff with him um, and he told me that they want uh, not very long ago they hired out the whole the whole lot of one of the big studios up there MGM a lot or something because they wanted to set up like about a hundred Tyco drummers and play them through the public address system and record <laughs> it Jesus and it was just like the most ridiculous excessive kind of thing to do but it's like he said they love doing these kind of things because it kind of injects the process with a bit of fun. Well, and also, <laughs> you know, I'd imagine it, it, it can do these things. Oh, and also, it gives you, know. you no, notoriety within the within the film world, which is yeah. kind of one thing that he's obviously very good at. It's it's that thing, isn't it? When you get sort of great artists, conceptual artists or contemporary artists, and what that, as well as the work that they do. The other thing that they're generally really, really good at is talking a good game and talking. It's almost it's yeah. almost sales, but talking in the right language to the client yeah. so that they feel like they're getting this amazing musical event or art event or whatever it may be. And it, it strikes me that um, Hans Zimmer has that ability, you know, because he's taken Hollywood over pretty much, hasn't he? I mean, I, I think there's a lot there's a lot of other composers around. Well, I'm not saying he's the the most famous. He's probably one of the most famous in the world, I would imagine. But there are others there. But he's got that foothold because he's just so good at liaising with them, I guess. There's, there's, there's these amazing. Um, sorry, I was going to just say they're these amazing um, round table kind of videos. I can't remember. What oh they're yes, called on yeah, YouTube. yeah, I've seen those. Where, there's a few, few, few film, you know, famous film composers talking, and there was with one classic line. There's a group of them, and they're like really big people. It wasn't like Hans Zimmer and a few unknowns. It's like all the big names, and they all just said, "Oh, thanks very much, Hans." Every score we do, we always get asked, "Can you do something like Hans Zimmer?" <laughs> <laughs> that kind of set benchmark that everybody else had to sort of attain to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Mark, have you ever done any work to picture like that? I mean, not orchestral, but I mean, it's quite a it's quite a challenging gig, isn't it? Um, yes, I did a tiny bit of it uh, back in the early aughts when I lived in Minneapolis, and I was doing a lot of scoring for theater uh, and sketch comedy. But there were a few little attempts at film, and I I loved it. But it was really challenging, especially with the technology that I had at that point, which uh, yeah. a lot of it was guessing and uh, good luck. But uh, yeah. yeah, it's it has become an awful lot easier now. Though, of course, if you're working on the PC, remember not to use QuickTime anymore because it's a bad thing at the moment, as uh, you will have noticed from last week's story on the vulnerability. But yes. Well, uh, it seems that uh, we have reached our point of uh, of exit, I think, and uh, we've covered all the topics that are in the list, which is awesome. So I want to say thank you very much to my guest. Some fantastic print stuff there. Absolutely brilliant. Before we go, though, I should just quickly remind you that if you want to win a copy of Ozone 7 from Isotope, uh, you want to tweet the hashtag AudioPolish as one word and the hashtag Ozone 7 as one word.
word with the letters with the number seven on the end to at Sonic State and at Isotope Inc. That's audio polish and the hashtag Ozone Seven at Sonic State at Isotope Inc. on Twitter, and you will be entered to win thanks to their sponsorship. So, guys, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Mr. Doty. A pleasure to have you aboard. I'm sure you've probably got some synths to review, as we all do yeah. these days. There's just so many of the darn things. For God's sake, don't get into Eurorack modules. You'll never have a night's sleep. <laughs> Now, yeah, there's a lot of stuff coming, including one surprise that you're already familiar with. I mean, the synth, but uh, I think other people will be kind of surprised. Also, now I feel like I have to get a D50. And uh, all those years I kind of made fun of them. I'm sorry, Eric. And and now I find out from Dave that all those patches are on there. Now I want one. Oh. Well, I'm pretty anyway. sure you can pick them up for a, a, reason, a reasonable amount. Certainly for now. You better be quick, though. Uh, anyway, yeah. <laughs> thank you very much, Mark. Bob Move Foundation is where you can find out Mark's day job and all his good work. Thank you. And also, Mr. Robbie Bronneman, uh, again, thanks to your client for giving you the time off. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and we'll see you out and about. I guess if you're on the road, we're not going to see all that much of you, I suppose. No, well, yeah, no. Next couple of, I've got three weeks before I go. Oh, I forgot I bought a new toy this week. Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't resist. I know I said I wasn't going to. Because I had the two octave one, which I'm absolutely in love with. But then I was doing this other work on this new track with ambient stuff. And I was like, oh, you know, actually, I don't really want to jump around with the octave buttons. So I got the four octave one, which I think is the perfect, the perfect one. Okay. It's the perfect, perfect combination of all the elements. Well, there so, yeah, you go. I'm loving it. Well, I'm pleased for you. Uh, I've I've still yet to start reviewing uh, uh, mine because I've got to, I've got one. I've got one. In for look. Yeah, here we go. Great. Uh, <laughs> nice. In fact, it's, it, the first job, <laughs> what I did is I hooked it up to the Korg Volker FM, <laughs> which was quite challenging actually, but it, 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 I did manage to get it to work. But uh, yes. Right. Because uh, it will do ordin- you know, usual sort of MIDI yeah. duties if you so wanted to do. But yeah, there will be a review forthcoming at some point in the future. Yeah. And uh, Mr. Dave Spears, I appreciate. thank you very much for digging out the D550 and giving us a little whistle-stop tour of the patches there. And uh, yeah. I'm going to leave you. I'll leave you with the end of Love Sexy, shall I? Oh, all right then. Where he says, oh, hold on to your soul. We've got a long way to go. Ah, I believe that was that patch was a, a kind of mistake or something. Something happened in the EPROM. I don't know. Eric will tell you all about that. Well, uh, when we yes, had... thank you very much. I had somebody come in this room. Actually, this I'll just leave you with this funny little anecdote. I had somebody completely non-musical, non-synthesis head come in this room the other day, and he said, "Whoa, these don't look very modern." And I went, "No, they're quite old. Some of them date back to the '60s." And he looked at me completely seriously and went. I suppose they'll do the job until you can afford something newer. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Uh, That's a a good one. That's a great. Actually, that reminds me one one last anecdote before we go. I was reading, um, there was a chat, just in my memory, I hadn't actually prepared anything, so I can't remember his name, but he said he was thinking about writing a book. And uh, he had an anecdote that he went to play a gig in a barn on a farm farm somewhere. And... uh, he went over and, uh, you know, the farmer was kind of, you know, as he was, le- as he was loading up, the farmer just said, oh, yeah, oh, you're a keyboard player, are you? And he said, uh, yep, yeah. Uh, and he said, oh, I bought this uh, place off a keyboard, a keyboard player. Uh, Keith, I think his name was. And, and the guy said, oh, what, Keith Emerson? He said, yeah, that's right. That's the guy. And, um, and he said, this barn, it was just full 
of old keyboards and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I guess, you know, after I bought the place, I contacted him a number of times, said, are you going to come and get these things? But I'm guessing, you know, they must have been, you know, freebies off people because he never bothered. So... uh, I got uh, I got one of the lads uh, in with the uh, with a truck, and what we did is you see that field over there. We dug a massive hole and we buried them in uh, under twenty foot of clay. <laughs> and the guy was like, "Oh wow!" So yeah, there's probably there's a huge trove of Hammonds and all sorts of things. I don't know if this is a true story, but it's a, it's a kind of yeah. Mark, your face. <laughs> we can we we yeah. can only hope that there were no mugs in there and they were just some really crappy organs that time that... team need to go there sorry there needs to be a synth special of time team oh yeah that, that's a great well, idea we know where it is don't we because chris, <laughs> yeah. chris said where it was ah we, that's true yeah maybe we should ago. time team for so our us viewers is a, uh, a a uk archaeological um prime time telly thing when they uh, go and dig up people's gardens and find you know um roman remains and you know what have you anyway that's it for this week thank you ever so much for watching uh thank you very much to our youtube live viewers and all our people in the chat room the fulsome chat room which i'm going to say and just to let you know that i have edited up a version of the live uh performance that we shot just going to run it by everybody make sure they're comfortable with all of the warts and all stuff going out um so there will be something there it's like an hour and 40 minutes you know and that's edited so it's quite a lot of material anyway uh, that's it thanks very much for watching remember subscribe to the channel and we'll see you next time